Management is about compliance, it's about measurement, and it's about authority. Leadership is always gonna be voluntary in the sense that if someone has to follow you, then you're being a manager. If they choose to follow you, then you're being a leader. Hello and welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your weekly host. How exciting it is today to have Seth Godin joining us, the renowned author, inspirer, teacher, leader, thought leader, I might even go so far as to say clairvoyant. Seth, thank you for joining us today on the On Leadership set from your office outside of New York City. Well, thank you, Scott. You are always in the trenches, you're making a difference, and it's a pleasure to watch you make this impact on the world. Thanks for having me. Seth, we're so honored to have your time today. You and I have been friends for a better part of um, eight or 10 years now. We've met several times. I've been privileged to be at your office in New York, outside of New York a couple of times. You've been at our CEO's home at least once last year. I've learned, honestly, so much from you. In fact, you are the most intentional and deliberate person I have ever met in my life. And I mean that as the sincerest wow. compliments. You are so thoughtful about what you say yes to, what you say no to. And, and I'm guessing as you've you know, matured and succeeded in life, you have a little more privilege than some may have. If we might open for a minute and talk about, it's just, to the extent you agree, how have you become so intentional and deliberate with your actions? And what might you say to everybody else listening, how they could maybe do the same? Well, those are probably two different questions. You know, I am not a little privileged, I'm a lot privileged. I have uh, just an unbelievable amount of opportunity and that comes with a lot of obligation. So I think hard about who's it for and what's it for, this design thinking that can inform so much of what we do. You know, when I started my career, I was uh, high energy, erratic. I got an enormous amount done, but I was a little bit of a pinball, always seeking forward motion. And what I discovered is that a lot of that wasted drama was depleting my ability to do the kind of work that I wanted to do. Hmm. And so when I was able to take a breath, I thought about, well then this thing I'm working on, this project, this day, I'm spending it. Not only am I spending it, but I'm taking something in return. I'm taking attention, I'm taking possibility. How do I wanna spend, how do I wanna take so I can make the change that I seek to make? And I think that the most important thing any of us do when we go to work is we make change happen. And if you're not intentional about that change, if that change is sort of an accidental byproduct of whatever you feel like doing, I feel like that's a waste. Uh, Seth, I'm so excited about our time today. As you know, in this studio, we have about 162 of the most inf impactful books I've ever read. You have nine on the wall, so I can't pay you a finer tribute to say you've got a large share of real estate in this studio. I, I look around and I, I can't even count them all. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Purple Cow and Poke the Box and Lynchpin, Permission Marketing. I mean, I can go on and on. You have been one of the most prolific writers, I think, of our time. And I want to pay you a compliment. I say in the opening that you're kind of clairvoyant. I mean that as a compliment because about a week ago, I was talking with our global director of social media, John Lofgren, and I was saying, you know, what Seth does best is he has a stethoscope on the conference room of every company in the world listening in on what they're talking about. And every week, every day, when your blog comes out, 
at Franklin Covey, it's like a race to see who can send it out to say, was Seth in our meeting yesterday? How does he know what's going on so well? And John Lofgren said, you know, it isn't a stethoscope, it's the stethoscope. You probably heard that before, but I think he's named you right as you really are the world's stethoscope listening to what's going on. How have you found for not being in the midst of, you know, corporate America or, you know, the world's business center, you're an entrepreneur now, how do you think you've found to get your pulse on what's happening to all of us every day in our lives? What price did you pay to be so accurate? Well, you're, you're super kind, but I think you're incorrect. First of all, half my blog posts are below average. I'm certain of that. And if you have enough blog posts, if you show up daily, odds are sooner or later you're gonna get something right. Now, what I've discovered is that you can observe a lot just by listening, just by trying to understand why are things the way they are. So when you see a company or organization screw up, and you say, well, but they're all smart people, why did they screw up? And you try to reverse engineer, how did that happen? How did they end up doing that boneheaded play? How did they miss that opportunity? It comes down to that boardroom, to that meeting, to where did two people get together and decide to compromise themselves out of relevance? And through the years, particularly in the media space, I've been in the room where some of those mistakes got made, whether it was at AOL or at a book publisher or a TV network. And you can watch the cycle of compromise and fear, the desire we have to fit in, which we got taught in school from a, a young age. And We've built a culture that doesn't reward that anymore. That disconnect between the culture and um, what works, that's a problem. And so that's the thing I keep mining for ideas. And then the other part of what I do is there's, I do a lot of astrology. You know, the, the magic of, of a horoscope is the parts it leaves out, right? So it doesn't say you will meet someone named Bruce who will give you $7. It says, sometime today, you will meet an old friend who will bring you good news. And that opens the door for the reader to fill in the blanks. And so part of the discipline is ignoring SEO, ignoring what Google wants, ignoring the easy answer. And instead, giving people a hint toward what they already know deep down, and then giving them the privilege and the ability, the confidence to go do what they knew they should have done all along. Seth, far be it for me to disagree with you on camera, but I think you're wrong. I think your blog posts are penetrating, insightful, prescient. I printed off 300 of them last week and managed to take about 15, I hope to review. I think they're as fresh as they ever are. Uh, I'd like to take a few minutes and talk about your journey. For someone who's so deliberate, so intentional, you're involved, I think, in a lot of things. When I, when I interview a, a guest every week, I usually send an email out to about a dozen colleagues and friends around the world. I pick a different 12 people every week and say, hey, I'm interviewing XYZ person, what would you have me ask them? And usually the answers come in all very disparate. Except for this past week when eight of the 12 people I asked, what should I ask Seth Godin? Eight of them said, I wanna learn more about his Alt-MBA. So in a few minutes, we're gonna talk about this idea that you've uh, launched, germinated, that thousands of people are involved in the Alt-MBA. But would you take a couple of minutes before that and talk about your journey? I'd love to kind of know how you got started and then maybe even some, what are some of the lessons you've learned along the way? Well, you know, my professional arc got started as someone who makes things, a producer of media artifacts. And I got 
one of my biggest lucky breaks in 1982 when I got a job at a little company called Spinnaker Software. I was the 30th employee. I was brand manager. But in most companies, when you're a brand manager, you get a pile of money and a mediocre product. And they say, run enough ads to get up enough distribution so we can sell more stuff. But that's not what my job was. My job was to invent products that people wanted to buy. So I just took this off the shelf. This is uh, Rendezvous with Rama by the great Arthur C. Clarke. I got to work with Clarke. I made the packaging. I led the team of 40 engineers that made the product. And then I had to go spend the money and sell a bunch of them. And I made dozens of products. We sold millions of copies. It was a hoot for a 24-year-old to be able to be in the business of building was extraordinary. What a treat. And after that, when I went out into the world on my own and became a book packager, I made many of the books that you see behind me, inventing the books, causing them to be written. But over time, after I did the book thing and then built one of the very first internet companies, I realized that deep down what I really am is a teacher and that I would rather teach people to make things than to make them myself. I would rather open the door for other people. And so I began as a teacher of marketing because the world needed teachers of marketing. And the book Permission Marketing showed up in the right time in the right place to change that industry fundamentally. But my arc has always been in the direction of how can I help adults and sometimes kids, but mostly adults, tell themselves the truth and level up. And that's what led to the creation of the Alt-MBA. It's what's informed most of my books that I feel like if I can teach people something, that's a high calling. And that's what I try to push myself to do. Seth, when you and I were together once a couple of years ago, I, you may recall I asked you, what was your, what business were you in? What was your SIC code? And you thought about it for a few minutes and you gave me several answers, one of which I'll never forget. I'm gonna quote, misquote you, but you, in essence you said, one of your talents, the business you're in, is to help to, to, to give context, to structure, to name things that people otherwise didn't maybe have a name for. Without the name, they weren't really able to address them or identify them. I'm sure I've slaughtered the quote, but have I got part of that right? Do you think that's part of your, part of your value is in your teaching, you're, you're, you're able to name parts of our lives that we are maybe drowning in or thriving in, and the more we can name them, and identify them, the more we can thrive in them or leave them behind or move them forward. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's what, and that's what Franklin Covey does as well, right? That when you think about effective training, when you think about the breakthroughs of the original seven habits, that naming it permits us to store it. It permits us to work on it. And most of all, it permits us to talk to other people about it. And what differentiates human beings from most species is we can talk to each other about things. So if something gets talked about, it evolves over time. People contribute to it and moves forward. So it's super easy, for example, to talk about a logo, <clears throat> which is why it's so hard for a company to change its logo. It's really difficult to talk about the organic chemistry that's involved in a non-foaming antibacterial food safe soap. So almost no one talks about that. <laughs> because they're not facile with the words and the concepts. Right. right. So when I see that there's something we ought to be talking about and we're not, if I can name it, if I can say it's a little like that thing that you're used to, building that bridge, well, that's what great authors and teachers try to do. And I think that, you know, I learned a lot of that from your organization as well. 
Uh, Seth, thank you for the compliment for Stephen. I think what you have in common with Jim Collins and Stephen Covey and others is your ability to change the vernacular, change the vocabulary. I mean, permission marketing and poke the box and ship it. And terms like that that I reference all the time have had a profound impact, not just on my career, but on the group that I've led and other marketers I know. I want to spend some time talking about marketing today and leadership but I want to talk about maybe some of your bumps in the road. You have arguably one of the highest batting averages that I've seen of people of your stature. There have to have been some lessons that you've learned, mistakes you've made, that maybe you're willing to tell us along the way. You know, you didn't see this failure. Here's what I learned from it. Anything come to mind? Yeah, I mean, come on, you did a lot of research. My batting average is terrible. I it's, I'm so proud of how bad my batting average is. It's terrible. The thing is, I get up to bat more than almost anyone. That's why it looks like I have a good batting average. Yeah. But behind me are dozens and dozens and dozens of books I packaged that you never bought, that almost no one ever bought. And in 1994, 95, I'm sitting in my internet company, one of the first internet companies in the world, and someone shows me the World Wide Web. And I say, that's stupid, that'll never work. That's a billion dollar mistake right there. You don't see people parading around the fact that Seth Godin ignored the World Wide Web for two years when he could have figured out how to build Google, right? Or the 800 rejections I got in a row back when I was in the book industry, or the idea that I was sure some format was going to take off like CD-ROM and I invested years in my life in that format and then nothing. You know, there's a long history of me being wrong. I wouldn't trade any of those errors. I wouldn't trade one of them. Because if I didn't have those errors, I wouldn't be able to do what I do now. I, I'm delighted that was your answer. Because as we've interviewed other people like you, talk about overnight sensations and all these successes, everyone says the same thing, what you just said, which is, you know, keep working because you don't see the failures, you only see the successes, and there's no such thing as an overnight sensation. So I'm glad, I think you've given a breath of fresh air to everybody watching today to say, keep trying, keep poking the box, right? Keep shipping. Yeah, and you might be an overnight sensation and it could be the worst thing that ever happened to you. I mean, if you, if you look, what's the most successful music video of all time? It's clearly Psy uh, doing the Gangnam Style dance. And exactly where is he now, right? That when lightning strikes you, what's really likely to happen is you're gonna get killed by lightning. You don't want that to happen. So Seth, let's talk about some of your books. I've read, I know, 10 or 12 of them. I have eight on the wall here. A book coming out that you've written in November, I think it is, I was privileged to get an advanced copy called This Is Marketing. I make it a habit to ensure that I read the entire book, the latest book of anybody I'm interviewing. So as I'm making that same promise to you, I'm gonna confess, I made it to page 43, which is about okay. you know, a tenth of the book, because it was so captivating. I found myself stopping every two sentences, writing something down, literally taking pictures of passages and texting them to our president, to our VP of marketing saying, we need to do more of this. This is an exciting book coming out in November. Uh, I give you permission. Talk a little bit about this book, why you've written this, why it's important not just to marketers, but to people who are in business period. People have their own businesses, their own ideas. Well, for someone who's supposed to name things, I've been unable to name what we should call marketing now, because it's not like marketing was. Marketing used to be something we did to people. It used to be something we did at people. That the idea of marketing is someone else in the organization made something, pretty average. Someone gave us some cash and this average stuff. And they said, quick, go sell it. And if you sell it, you can sell more. 
that was what marketing was. That's Mad Men. That's ad agencies. That's David Ogilvy. That's TV ads. That's interrupting people. And I haven't written a marketing book, a major marketing book, in more than 10 years. And the idea is that it's a new thing now. It's a completely new thing because people don't have to listen to you if they don't want to. That's number one. Number two is you are way more likely to be heard of because people talk about you than you talk about yourself. So when people talk about you, what do they say? So the subtitle of the book could be work that matters for people who care. That's what we get a chance to do. And that what marketers do for a living is we make change happen. If you don't make a change happen, your marketing has failed. So if we begin with those two ideas, we end up with the biggest idea in the book, which is that successful marketers today don't try to please the largest possible audience. Instead, they obsess with the smallest viable audience. That if you can select the people who it's for, if you're comfortable with what it's for, and you can change them, they will tell the others. And when they tell the others, then the word spreads and you've got a shot. And so what I'm trying to do in this book, this book length treatment, is cover what we cover in the marketing seminar, which more than 6,000 people have been through, which is a community workshop that lasts for 100 days. And I've seen it, because I can watch all the people interacting. Watch them experience how they're gonna rebuild their nonprofit, their little startup, their big company. We've had students in the seminars I run from giant famous companies and from little tiny things in 46 different countries. And what I learned from that, that's what I put in this book, which is there's a lot of really smart, successful things happening now. But if all you're doing is reading old marketing books, you wouldn't know it. Seth, that's exactly why I only made it to page 43 because I became obsessed with this concept of the smallest viable audience. In fact, that passage was what we just paid a consultant a week ago to tell us, don't try to boil the ocean, get very specific. So I actually texted that passage to our president. Uh, you mentioned the book is based on a marketing program. Take a minute and talk about that for people who might want to sign up or be involved in that. Well, so everyone who's on the internet knows there's all these online classes. And the thing about online classes is there's no degree, there's no grades, and they're fun. And they tend to be a bunch of video, people like me talking to you. And then you watch it for 15 or 20 minutes, you quit and you think you should be smarter. And I'm not opposed to any of that, but the dropout rate's over 90%. Because what happens is as soon as education starts to work, it feels difficult because you're momentarily incompetent on your way to getting smart. And in that moment, because there's no peer pressure, you just stop. So what I set out to do five years ago was invent a different way to do online education because I believe in the digital revolution, but I thought online education was failing. And the first one we did was the Alt-MBA, which I'll talk about in a minute. And then the latest one is called the Marketing Seminar. And in two weeks, we're gonna launch a new one called the Bootstrappers Workshop. And in both of those situations, what we've done is built a peer-to-peer -peer platform where people are working with each other, sharing their work, sharing their questions, and engaging with others. And when it's up and running, on average, people are posting every one to five minutes, 24 hours a day around the world. They're finding cohorts of other people. So inside the marketing workshop, the marketing seminar, and we're running again in January, inside the marketing seminar are 
50 videos from me. And you can't watch them all at once. There's a new one every two days. And at the end of the video, I challenge the students to explore that four minute idea in their own work and then post it and then comment on other people's posts. And so this whole swirling conversation takes place. And then two days later, I'm back with the next step. And the, the end of a hundred days, you will see the world differently for sure. And we get under people's skin and we cause connections to occur between and among. And it's those connections that create the peer pressure. And it's that peer pressure that creates the culture. And it's that culture that leads to learning. So I know I could sign up 100,000 people if I made a course that was fast, easy, cheap, and now. And I have no interest in doing that. Mm -hmm. So we're doing things that are slow, mm -hmm. more difficult, uh, and take time because they work. Seth, a minute more on this book, because I found this book to be super valuable. I highly recommend anybody who's interested in the marketplace, as you kind of begin to redefine marketing, to buy this book when it's out in November. Would you take a moment and retell the J.C. Penney story? Because like Stephen Covey, although you don't name it your paradigm, you spend some time talking about how our lens of the world can, you know, sort of jaundice what it is is really happening out there. Would you retell the J.C. Penney, Penney story? It had a really profound impact on me. I mean, how close am I to being the leader of J.C. Penney with Franklin Covey? So um, empathy is tricky. It's fun to talk about, but it's tricky because people don't believe what you believe. They don't want what you want and they don't know what you know. So we have a couple choices. We can say, I'm right. You need to believe what I believe. You need to want what I want. You need to know what I know. Follow me. And there are certain instances in our life where that's really important, where we need people who will elevate the culture, who will set standards and who will be absolute in that. But in most situations, we don't have the leverage or the power or the persistence to be able to pull that off. So what empathy is, is I don't believe what you believe. I don't know what you know. I don't want what you want. But I could imagine giving you the tools you need to get to where you want to go. So Ron Johnson, a smart guy, worked at Target, got recruited to work at Apple. He invented the Genius Bar. The Apple store, as you know it, is Ron Johnson's work. And as you know, Apple just became worth a trillion dollars and he had a lot to do with that. Well, after he succeeded at that, he decided to move on. He went to JCPenney. And what he did at JCPenney was he said, I'm gonna get rid of all the coupons and the false emergencies because it's manipulative and it's sort of fake. And I'm just gonna have better products at a fair price because that's the kind of store I would wanna shop in if I was a discount shopper. And as a result, the penny shoppers left. They left in droves. The company almost went bankrupt. And the reason is, the reason that people were shopping at pennies is they liked the sport. They liked the game. They liked the idea that they were beating pennies by waiting for the last minute markdown and then running into the store to grab that last pair of shoes. And he took that away from them because he didn't have the empathy to understand the worldview of the person who was looking at pennies was different than the worldview of the person who was looking to buy an iPhone. The concept had a, a kind of um, earth-shaking impact on me because I 
don't know that I'm like our typical customer also, so I have to be really thoughtful around not designing messaging or ad copy or campaigns right. that speak to me, but speak to the chief learning officer, which I'm not, that speaks to a leader in L&D or talent development, which I'm neither of those. I have to constantly struggle to get out of my world and into their world to, as you say, create products that they want, so it's more of a pull versus a push. But there's a big but here. Work that matters for people who care. If you want to do work that matters mm -hmm. and those people don't care about the work you're doing, don't be angry at those people. Just walk away from them. That shunning the non-believers is a key part of everything I'm teaching. Because, you know, you have said very kind things about me, but 98% of the people in the United States have never heard of me. 98%. That's perfect. I like it like that. My job is not to get more readers from my writing. My job is to do more writing for my readers. And that gets back to the smallest viable audience. You don't say, this needs to be for everybody. How do I get in everybody's head? You say, I want to make this. Who believes what I believe around this? Because otherwise I can't make this unless I find the true believers. Seth, take that one step further. Will you share the example about the local election and the primary, the contested primary and the population to go after? I thought it was a great illustration of that concept. Yeah, I think I tell two election stories in the book, but um, the one I think you're referencing is this. I was talking uh, to somebody who was running for Congress and they were uh, explaining to me that they had to raise a lot of money to get the word out because uh, it, there were you know, 98,000 people in their district and even if they only spent $10 a person, that was gonna cost them a million bucks. And I looked up the results from the primary two years earlier and in that primary, the difference between winning and losing, I'm misremembering here, but between winning and losing was about 1,500 votes. So 100,000 votes isn't the point. It's about can you change 750 people from voting A to voting B, or even better, can you just activate 1,600 people who didn't vote and get them to vote? 1,600 people to vote who didn't vote, you win. That's a totally different project. And it's a project we're afraid of because it's specific. If you pick specific, you can get rejected. Whereas if you pick general, you're like, well, whatever, I'm putting it into the world and the world should give it back. And the internet is not a mass medium. It feels like one because there's two and a half billion people on it. But there are two and a half billion people watching two and a half million channels. That's only a thousand people per channel, right? Do the math, it's a micro medium, it's not a macro medium. Seth, you talk to audiences many times throughout the year. I know, and, and like all great authors, you probably hibernate at times and hunker down and write, but when you speak to audiences and you see great leadership, when you're with individuals in the Alt MBA or your marketing program or people you encounter, uh, top of mind, what makes great leadership? What, what, what traits come to mind when you think of great leaders in not just maybe 2019, but what will it look sure. like in say 2025? The most important thing is to understand that leadership and management are different things. And I think that Franklin Covey teaches both, but they must be distinguished. Management is using authority and hierarchy to get people who work for you to do what they're supposed to do. Management is about compliance, it's about measurement, and it's about authority. Leadership 
is always going to be voluntary in the sense that if someone has to follow you, then you're being a manager. If they choose to follow you, then you're being a leader. And it is not about authority. It's about responsibility. I will take responsibility for what happens next. So the great leaders, if you research them through history, the only thing they have in common is that they were great leaders. Joan of Arc, Napoleon Bonaparte, Gandhi, the Reverend King, what do they have in common, right? Tall, short, skinny, stuttering, nothing in common, except they were great leaders because they cared enough to embrace the risk of saying, over there, I see something that might work over there. Who wants to come? And when you think about something as powerful as the civil rights movement, where was the hierarchy? Where were people telling everyone else what to do? They walked side by side because that's what it is to lead. That management's important. Like, I don't want a pacemaker put into me by an organization that has no managers. But leadership, leadership is scarce. And leadership requires the guts to do something that might not work. Except to that point, Dr. Covey always you know, talked about both, right? The need to manage and to lead. He used to turn the phrase, you manage things, you lead people. Right now, our company is writing a book about the six critical practices for leading a team. It's one of our courses. And we're titling the book right now, under great debate, everyone deserves a great manager. And there is this fierce internal debate, should the book be everybody deserves a great leader versus manager and the difference between manager and leader. Give us some advice on camera. Which of those should we pick or a third alternative? Okay, so the way we use the word when we're talking to ourselves because we want to do the right kind of work, managers and leaders semantically, you got to be really clear. But when you're selling something with empathy, the fact is more people aspire to feel like a leader than they aspire to feel like a manager. That when we think, if I say visualize a manager, you're visualizing someone at McDonald's. And so I think in order to bring the aspirational element to a book, I would willfully misuse the word leader when you really mean manager, because you'll sell more copies. <laughs> which you know something about. Uh, Seth, talk about the future of marketing. I, I might argue, again, to be generous to you, not to be a sycophant, but to be accurate too, you've, you've broadened the perspective of what marketing means. I think everyone is a marketer, right? In their brand, in their career, with their children, with their products. What does the future of marketing look like? And you've even kind of renamed it a bit to talk about marketplace. You know, 10 years from now, what are great marketers going to be doing that they're not yet doing today? Well, you know, an organization can be market-driven or marketing-driven. What it means to be marketing-driven is you have meetings about market share, packaging, pricing, the stuff that marketers do. What it means to be market-driven is you think deeply about what people want and need, what they dream of and what they talk about, and you make that. So if your organization makes lousy average stuff and then tries to market it, then you're marketing driven. And I really feel like, you know, the big guys, the Amazons of the world are going to clear the table from all the low hanging fruit of, oh, you need an orange kumquat peeler? Here's one. You're not going to be allowed to do that. The goal for the future then is going to be the magic of creating alchemy 
of putting things together that when people see it, they go, gosh, I can't wait to get my hands on that. And so, you know, what we teach in the Alt-MBA, and we've run 22 sessions so far, is none of the stuff that they teach in business school. We don't teach the horribly named hard skills. We teach the horribly named soft skills, which are how do you deal with that noise in your head? How do you deal with the fear? How do you cycle to give and get feedback? And most of all, how do you find the magic that's within you to be the kind of leader that you know you are? Because what we have found is that people have been crushed for decades into believing that they just have to be a compliant cog in a system. And if you just give them a little bit of a way out, they'll flourish like a, you know, something in the crack mm -hmm. of the sidewalk mm -hmm. and can grow exponentially in just a few weeks. Because deep down, that's what we want to do. We want to be able to say to people here, I made this. We want to be able to ask the hard questions about design thinking. And so all of that stuff has rarely been taught to people. And that's why we built the Alt-MBA, to teach that. So let's talk more about that. Seth, about a year ago, you were invited to our chairman's house. Bob Whitman is a big fan of yours, as is every member of our executive team, and I think company worldwide. And you came out and spent the afternoon with us to talk about you know, ways we could collaborate. We have a lot in common, our affinity for you. I think your support and your affinity for Dr. Covey's legacy. And as we were brainstorming ways to collaborate, you could just tell your, your, your passion uh, your disposition became more vibrant when you discussed the Alt-MBA with our team. Let's take a few minutes, talk about you know, why it was invented, what was your vision, how does someone get involved in it, what's the outcome? Talk about uh, where the Alt-MBA is taking education in the world right now. Well, you know, I brought a lot of discipline to it because it's not a business. It's an example, it's a project, it's our chance to, you know, if people steal the ideas, we think that's fantastic. And I began with the discipline of saying, I'm not gonna be in it, no videos. No videos of me, no videos of anybody. We're gonna have coaches, which most online courses don't, and all of our coaches are gonna be alumni. And so now we've got 90 coaches, many of whom have done it multiple, multiple times. We're gonna have it involve face-to-face -face video conferencing and a lot of real-time stuff, even though most online things are asynchronous. Do it whenever you want. This is, no, we need you here right now. It's not gonna be easy, it's gonna be intense, two or three hours a day for a month. You can keep your day job, but be prepared to stop watching Game of Thrones because you're gonna be in it in a real way. We're gonna build it around giving and getting feedback that the typical participant in the Alt-MBA gives and gets more feedback in 30 days than they have gotten in their entire career. And that's scary and then refreshing because you realize it's not fatal and you realize how generous it is. And the whole project is, the whole course is based around 14 projects. We do a project every two days. And you read it and you have a study group and you have a conference and you have another study group and then you write and you publish and you get responses and you respond to the responses and you do it all over again. And what we're trying to show is that education has to be experiential that when all the information in the world can be looked up with 10 keystrokes, why should you memorize this? You should learn how to look stuff up as opposed to memorizing what you're gonna look up. That's not the skill. And as AI gets more and more powerful, as AI can read an X-ray better than a radiologist can, then what kind of skill, 
will make you successful. Well, it's not the skill of being a hands-on craft person who works with machines, because machines are better at working with machines. That what will help us move forward is being better at working with humans, solving interesting problems, and choosing to lead. And so the way we run it is there's only 125 people in a session, and the session lasts for a month. We only run four uh, bunches of sessions a year. So the last session for 2018, 2018 the applications uh, close in about two weeks. And then there won't be another one till 2019. And people have to apply. The application only takes a few minutes, but we're working really hard to keep upping the ante. And it's cheap compared to ordinary school and expensive compared to cheap online courses. Because what we try to do is make it a commitment. And a lot of people get their company to pay for it. But we're in no hurry to grow. We don't add more cohorts just because we can. We do it because we think we can serve more people. So we're up to 2,600 alumni all around the world. They still connect with each other. And we're going to keep doing it as long as we can keep finding the right students. Can you offer anybody some advice here that may want to check it out or register in the coming couple of weeks, what they might do to move their application to the top sure. of the review process? Uh, go to altmba.com. And the number one secret for your application is you need to complete your application. <laughs> that the people who don't complete their application don't get in. And it literally takes five minutes. If you just give us a tiny glimpse into who you really are, I am confident that we will see you as you mean to be seen. Seth, what's next for you? What's on the horizon? Uh, I know you were speaking at the World Business Forum in November. Uh, you were gracious enough to offer an endorsement to our Chief People Officer's book, Todd Davis. And through much of your source credibility and the generosity that you lended to him and his book, um, he now is actually speaking on stage with you at the World Business Forum. Fantastic. What an honor for Todd. What's next for that. you? Todd's great. Todd's great. I didn't know he was going to be out here. I'll buy him an ice cream cone. That's great. Yeah, Todd, Todd, is, uh, Todd has risen to the credibility again, because I think part of your gift for his book, Get Better, to be speaking at the World Business Forum with you, what an honor. What's next for you? You know, um, I'm not slowing down, but I'm becoming uh, more careful in the uh, arc of these projects. So between the Bootstrappers Workshop, the Alt-MBA, the blog, and um, the leadership uh, seminar, I need to nurture these things and get them to the point where people like us are doing things like this. So while it's always tempting to launch the new thing, mm -hmm. uh, I try to discipline myself about that. I will tell you that we're going to be doing um, special editions of this that come out right after this book does that are really cool. So people should watch the blog for that. We just sent it to the printer uh, yesterday, and I, it's making me grin every time I think about it. Seth, why do you think the blog is so popular? I mean, I, I read, I read a, a post on the web a couple days ago that said, you know, do we feel like Seth Godin's blogs are getting stale? And it was obviously a detractor. You probably read those because they inspire you somewhat. And I thought, stale? I, I've got like 20 of them printed out here in case we can get to them. I find it as fresh as ever. Uh, check your humility for a minute. Why does your blog continue to be one of the most followed in the world? Well, the biggest reason is, um, because I've done it daily for a very long time. So if you add 100 readers a day, it's going to add up. Right. Uh, the second thing is because I take my own advice, permission marketing is built right into it. Most of the people who read my blog do not remember in the morning to type Seth's blog into their uh, 
browser and go visit me. I come to them. I'm the milkman. And a milkman with a route where the milk is free and people can subscribe to it, day by day, you can build it up. But I think the real thing strategically that I do, which I learned when I was a columnist at Fast Company for all those years, is I write things to be forwarded. That the goal of a good post is people who read it will say to 10 or 20 people, yep, see, this is what I meant. That if I can give people the words they were looking for to talk to other people, they'll use them. And some of those other people will read what I wrote and say, oh, I'll subscribe. And so you ratchet it. You don't have to play any games. I don't have to do link bait. I don't have to worry about you know, the surf coming in and out and the tide. Who am I gonna grab today? That's not it. I plan to do the blog for 50 more years. I'm in no hurry. And I work, you know, for every blog post you read, I write four or five of them, delete the rest. And I work very hard on it because it's a privilege. I don't do it to make money. I don't make any money from the blog. There are no ads. I do it because what a chance I have to whisper to people who care, to whisper to people who are leading, to say, what do you think about this? And I take it very seriously. And I try to do it lightly. I try to do it with a sense of humor, but it's my, one of my prized possessions uh, in the digital world for sure, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, I love the blog. I inspire everybody, buy the book, join Alt-MBA, uh, subscribe to the blog. Je uh, Seth, you're one of the most uh, generous friends I have. Uh, one of the wow, most um, magnanimous people I know. So I want to pay it back to you in a bit of a surprise. Tell us about your wife's bakery. It's something that I'm interested in. Your wife's been kind of toiling at this for a couple of years. Take a minute and, and evangelize some of the benefits of your wife's own enterprise. Well, uh, my wife started a bakery called By The Way. They don't ship, so you're gonna have to come to New York if you wanna try it. There's two in New York City and two up here uh, in the suburbs, plus she has a factory. And uh, she has about 60 people who work for her, really hardworking, wonderful people. And everything they make is gluten-free and dairy-free. Um, so talk about boundaries and constraints and the smallest viable audience. She totally understands that. And they're in 35 Whole Foods. But the thing that you'll discover if you visit uh, the website or just see what people are saying about it is the bakery is about inclusion. The bakery is about setting a table and not saying to that kid who has celiac or not saying to that person who doesn't eat dairy, sorry, you can't have any. That eating around the table is one of the, the foundational principles of, of our common culture. And so for her to be able to show up with a cake or a brownie or a muffin for everyone or almost everyone, um, that's a really cool thing for her to be able to do. And watching her grow it and you know, she was a lawyer. Lawyers don't have employees, and now she has dozens and dozens of them. So she understands that transition. It's, it's been thrilling to see what she built. Are your boys involved in the business at all? Uh, there was a time when my younger son uh, worked the counter, but that lasted about a week. So no, <laughs> neither one of them has anything whatsoever to do. Uh, and in fact, if they need a muffin, they, they're supposed to buy it with their own money. <laughs> Great principle. Uh, speaking of muffins, Seth, send us off with some 
some life inspiration. Everyone has a muffin business in mind or a jewelry business or some kind of entrepreneurial idea that they have or you know, a business they wanna grow or a book they wanna write or perhaps inside their organization that they wanna grow their career you know, further up and expand their influence. From all the books you've written, the blogs, the speaking, everything you've had access to, in the last minute, what, what inspiring advice might you give to everybody watching around how to make an impact, how to realize their dream, how to become you know, a, a better understanding of their marketplace? Yeah, I think the best way to realize your dream is to change your dream and to make your dream much, much smaller, to simply pick yourself. Not to say, I need to get on Oprah, but to say, I need to do something today that will change two people for the better. And then tomorrow I'm gonna to change four people for the better. That I need to go to this meeting and not get permission and authority to rebuild my department, but to simply bring enough generosity and enough uh, honesty to the interaction that one thing will change. Because that's what we do, we make change. And we don't make it with lightning bolts, we make it step by step. It's a journey. And if you're waiting for the escalator to get fixed, it's never gonna get fixed. That, you know, there's this great video of these executives stuck on a broken escalator, not sure what to do. And then every once in a while, someone's on the broken escalator and they say, wait a minute, I could just walk up these steps. And that's all we gotta do that the, the marketplace is more open today than it has been in human history. But you, there are no leaps, there's just steps. Seth, thanks for your time today. Uh, contagiously inspiring. If Dr. Covey were still with us, I know he'd be a big fan of yours as you have him. of his. We appreciate your time. Hope to have you back maybe next year and I'll make sure Todd holds you to the ice cream cone at the World Business Forum in November. Perfect. Seth, thank you so much. Have a great rest of the summer. Thank you, Scott. Go make a ruckus. Thank, thank you, you for sir. having me. Good day to you. And thank you to everybody for joining us. Hope you found Seth's uh, time with us inspiring. Check out Alt MBA. Look for his new book to come out in November. Subscribe to his blog. And we will see you back here next week with a new guest on Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. Thanks for your time.